Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, we are working through this series called Lost and Found, and we're going to be in this just a couple more weeks. And it's an important series for us. I hope it's an important series for you too, Uh, but it's going to require a little thinking. I actually learned a new word this week, and I'm not sure I can pronounce this correct. I actually Googled it and tried to get like the little devices on there that tell you how to pronounce it, and there were like different pronunciations, so that was not helpful at all. Uh, But I think it's phenomenophobia, phenomenophobia, which means the fear of thinking. Uh, Any of you afraid of thinking? Thomas Edison said, uh, 5% of people think, 10% of people think they think, and 85% of people would rather die than think. I don't know what category you're in today, but I do want to tell you, we're going to try to think today. In fact, we're going to actually try to think pretty deeply today, and we're going to dive in. So uh, just be warned, but we're going to be talking about salvation. And I can't think of anything better to think about than that. And so I hope that we'll be encouraged today. I think we will. Uh, What I see in life is that we uh, all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all turned, every one of us, to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, says in Isaiah, that each of us has wandered off the path that God had for us, and we need a Savior. And God laid the penalty and the price of our salvation upon his son, Jesus. Last week, we talked about our need for salvation and some of the consequences of salvation, uh, uh, consequences of our sin. And then that was kind of the bad news. We had to talk, before we could talk about being found, we had to talk about why we're lost. And we said last week that because of sin, we were alienated from God, enemies of God, alienated from other people, slaves to sin, blind and confused, spiritually dead, without hope and facing judgment. That's the bad news. We need a savior. The good news is that while we were helpless, Christ died for us and became a savior. And so today, uh, you know, I know know just being honest, like how many of you like to be told you're wrong? I I know that you don't even have to answer that. That's that's sort of hypothetical, but none of us like to be told we're wrong. I, I do enough counseling with marriages and parenting and relationships and other stuff to know that when someone tells the other party that they're wrong, rarely do they reach up and go, you're right, give me a high five on that deal, right? I also know that because I'm married. And when my wife tells me I'm wrong, I rarely reach up and go, oh, high five, baby. I'm all in on that deal. When my kids point out that I've blown it and done something wrong, I rarely go, oh, dude, you're right. High five. Like, eventually I may get there, but it usually takes me a little while because we don't like to be told we're wrong. And yet scriptures say all of us have gone astray. All of us have fallen short. And so we need a savior. Now, that may push you too far. Maybe you prefer to think that God is loving and accepting of everyone, no matter what they've done and wherever they are. And God just sort of uh, just blesses everything that you've ever done in your life. And there's nothing you have to overcome in your own life because uh, God is okay. And that's certainly a view you can hold. Well, let me just point out, a John Stark guy that I follow says, said this week, he says, we want to be free from God's authoritative reach, meaning We don't love being under God's authority. We don't love being told we're wrong. We we want to be free of his authoritative reach, but being free of God's authoritative reach also means being free from his healing reach. 
See, if you're free from being out of under his authority, you're also free from being out of under his healing, saving reach that brings you in. And so we need to trust our Lord as we begin to think about this. We talked last week about lost. This week, we're going to talk about what it means to be found. And it's an interesting, just as I, I read an awful lot, and as I do, one of the things that's happened lately for me is I've been really fascinated by the stories of salvation coming out of other places, other countries, and just how God is at work in other countries. And I read an article recently, and I just want to highlight some of this. It was talking about how God's working in Iran. And uh, the article says this, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together since Islam came to, came to Iran. That's amazing. You talk about a 20-year period of time, more people have come to Christ than over 13 centuries time. It said in 1979, there was an estimated number of 500 Christians from a Muslim background in the country of Iran. In the country, 500 so you're just talking a little more than is in this room in the whole country that actually knew Jesus. But it said that now, today, there are literally hundreds of thousands, some say more than a million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus. In fact, one organization that measures kind of trends in, in kind of how God's working in the world called Operation World said that Iran is actually the fastest growing church in the world. And second is Afghanistan, partially because Iran is sending missionaries and spreading the gospel into Afghanistan, and you're seeing God do work in all these places. And so that's the big picture, kind of macro, how God's working in this movement within this part of the world. Can I just tell you about three personal stories that this writer was telling about that, that he had heard? Well, let me just read these. Cameron was a violent man who used to sell drugs and weapons, and one day a friend gave him a New Testament. He said, after reading for five consecutive days, Cameron gave his life to Jesus. When his friends and family saw his transforming life over the ensuing months, many of them also came to faith, and a church now meets in his home. And that's a movement of God in this individual's life that rippled out beyond himself. Another story, <clears throat> Reza was a mullah, a Muslim scholar who hoped to become an ayatollah, which is kind of a Shiite leader. <clears throat> he said, one day while studying at an Islamic seminary in Iran, he found a New Testament that boldly had been left hidden in the library. Out of the curiosity, he picked it up and was deeply shaken. Over time, he fell in love with Jesus. Today, he's a church planter starting churches in that region. God is at work. Fatima's earliest memories were of being raped by her brothers. At age 11, she was sold in marriage to a young drug addict who abused her and then divorced her when she was 17. She went to live on the streets. Uh, upon returning home, was raped again, and then she decided to leave, left on the, lived on the streets. One day, she heard the gospel preach, and she trusted Jesus. Uh, later, over time passed, she married a Christian man and began to see her life transformed. They went back and shared the faith with those in her home, and her entire family repented and gave their lives to the Lord, seeing the grace of God at work. And those are stories are powerful. That's what salvation looks like. That's what God's grace appropriated, internalized, and embraced and received looks like in our lives. Now, here's, can I tell you why I'm preaching this series? Um, I, I preach this series because I'm afraid that sometimes here in the Bible Belt, we're in danger of missing out on that kind of salvation. That sometimes we're not seeing that kind of change in our lives because I, I think, and it's not that, that we don't know the information. 
At the very least, if we may be missing out on the salvation, but at the very least, I think we're missing out on the, the, of appropriating all the benefits of, sal- of the salvation that God has given us and embracing all the joy of the salvation that God wants to give us and embracing all the change that God wants to do in us. And, and I, my fear is that, and let me just say this, I don't mean the Bible Belt like just out there. I'm afraid we're going to miss it. I'm afraid we're going to miss it in here. I'm afraid some of us are missing out on all that God wants to give us in his grace. And we're not going to enjoy all the benefits that he wants to, he wants to bless us with. I think the gospel is exploding in a place like Iran because grace looks so radical. And because Jesus looks so radical in that place. I think sometimes here we've heard so much and we've sung the songs and we've put the lights up at Christmas and we've seen the manger scenes and we've seen the stuff that it just makes us numb and we're numb to the truth, numb to our sin, numb to grace, numb to the salvation that God wants to bring and numb to just the beautiful good news of the gospel. And so today, my prayer for you is that you would wake up to the grace of God and all that it means for you. You ever seen a guy on the sidelines of a football stadium that's a little bit woozy and they give him smelling salts? He kind of does one of these like, I hope today's kind of spiritual smelling salts for you. And you just kind of take a whiff and jolt you a little bit so that you understand all that you have in Jesus. The Bible says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as this? So let's get at it. I want to answer some questions for you today. And we're just going to walk through some questions and try to give you some answers. I'm talking about what is salvation? How do we get it? How does it work? Can we lose it? And we're going to talk through some of this stuff. First, let me just say, as we think about salvation, first thing you need to know is that it is all of grace, that it's all a gift, that it's all comes from God to us. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is a gift of grace given by God to us, but we have to receive it. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. God condescends for you so that you might enjoy all the blessings he wants to give through his grace. I've got a video I ran across this week, and can I just give you a wonderful picture of grace? I ran across this this week, and I just thought, this is the perfect picture of what grace looks like. So let me just, you may need to watch this three or four times. Watch this little guy. And is that not the best picture of grace? Um, I love everything about just watching that little guy as he stumbles out there and he just kind of does one of these and then lands on his head and he doesn't move. He's just stuck. Like He's kind of like Christmas story packed up and stuff and he lays down there and can't do anything. And, and I love how calm the dad is as he just kind of like, dunk, you know, picked him up. Right, and so they're doing this thing together, but um, one's actually able to achieve it and the other's not. That's grace. Uh, friends, you're the little guy trying to do life in that, in that illustration. God is the big guy. That's the contrast that there, and reality is the contrast between me and Jesus is so much bigger than that. It's just a picture, but man, it's so much more extreme than even what we see in that. 
So the heart of salvation message is grace. First Peter says, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ died and gave us grace so that we might be restored. He might bring us to God and restore us back to a relationship with him. What he's saying is Jesus overcame our inadequacy and did all the work to bring us back to God. It's all of grace. The first thing we need to understand about God's grace and how it works in our salvation is, is a, the first word I'm going to give you today is called regeneration. Jesus said, you must be born again. And he wasn't saying you need to climb back in your mother's womb because that'd be really odd and gross, honestly. Physically, you were born once. Uh, you can't redo that. He's saying spiritually, you must be born. You need to be regenerated. You need new life. He says you must be born from above or born of the spirit of God that something needs to be, that wasn't there in you needs to be birthed within your life. And so you need to experience the regeneration of God. Titus 3, 5 says this, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God saved us not because we were so good, but because he was merciful. He reached down into our world and he saved us and picked us up. And he did it through his Holy Spirit who regenerated and birthed spiritual life in us. So there's something that wasn't there that becomes there and that's regeneration. It means the Spirit of God has somehow breathed life into you to make you alive in a way you were previously dead. Friends, you don't need a better you to be a Christian. You need a new you. You don't, you don't just need a little bit of a cleanup. You don't just need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You need uh, to be a whole new creation. First, 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's a new creation. There's something that wasn't there that now is there. Spiritually, we need to experience that kind of thing. Friends, have you ever been made new? Have you ever been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Have you ever experienced some kind of uh, move from, from death into this new creation sort of thing? Have you ever gone from being blind to being able to see? Have you ever gone from being lost to being found? This is what he's talking about. And it happens through God breathing life in us and making us a new creation. The gospel doesn't give you self-help. The gospel gives you a new self. You become something new. And the scriptures talk about this putting off of the old and putting on the new that we need to walk into and experience as we go through that. But regeneration brings you sort of into the realm of salvation. So here's what I want you to understand is regeneration is what kind of gets you into this realm of salvation. But think about it as an umbrella and under this big umbrella, a lot of times we think of salvation and we hear that and we go, oh yeah, if you grew up in church, you think, oh yeah, I walked an aisle as a kid or I checked a box or I raised my hand or I got wet or I did something. And that meant that I was saved, which meant that it didn't really change me. It just meant that I get to go to heaven someday. I kind of get fire insurance and I get a free pass to heaven and that's what I get. And that may be all we, you thought of when you thought of salvation. But biblically, what you see is salvation is this ginormous umbrella under which lots of stuff falls. And so regeneration and God birthing that into us and us responding to God's regeneration with faith and repentance brings us under this umbrella of salvation. And I want to just talk to you about three different aspects of how God's salvation works out in us under this umbrella. You with me? All right, the first one is called justification. Justification is freedom from the penalty of sin, meaning we've been delivered from the punishment and the penalty of our sin. When Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we talked about that sin problem we had last week. 
that because of that, there's all kinds of consequences because we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in verse 24, he goes on and says, but we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, the last part of that statement can be a little bit confusing. It says that God is both just and justifier. Let me break that down for you. God has to punish sin because his character is one of justice. God is full of holiness and righteousness. And so he can't simply look the other way on sin. He has to punish that which violates his character. And so when he sees life lived in a way that's sort of thumbing our noses to, to the Lord, when we've gone astray, when we've wandered from him, he's obligated by his nature to punish sin. He has to be just as, a, as God because that's who he is. Part of what that means is he, he can't be like a lawyer trying to get you off on a technicality. Like he can't just like work around and like, hey, maybe I can just get these guys a free pass and, and get them in. He actually has to deal justly with the world because he's responsible for it and, and it's, we were created by him. So God is the standard of justice, which means he has to punish sin. But there's also a second word and that says he's not just just, but he's also the justifier. What is, he, what is he trying to say? He's saying God has to be the one that executes justice, but the only way he can manage our sin is he all, if he also stepped in and took the punishment of that justice. And so God himself substituted Jesus in order to, so he had to be the one that gives the punishment, but he also wanted, had to be the one that, that took the punishment. And so God the Father is going to execute that, and Jesus himself is going to substitute and take it for us. The word he uses there in that passage to describe that is propitiation. That's another big theological Bible term, but it's right there in your word. So let's talk about it. Propitiation means that Jesus was the one whom God put forward to satisfy God's righteous anger and appease his wrath. Jesus is the one that stepped in and took the bullet for us. Jesus is the one that inserted himself and allowed the, the punishment, the justice of God to be poured out on him so that we didn't have to suffer it ourselves. Jesus was our payment, our propitiation that satisfied God's wrath. Part of what that means for us is you don't have to worry about God's justice or his anger or his judgment against you. He's satisfied with Jesus' substitution. He doesn't, he, he's, not, he's not holding anything back. See, some of us grew up in households where, uh, parent, where we would kind of go through this, this thing of being uh, reconciled to someone, but then you'd find out a little later, like mom or dad, they were still a little bit angry. Like they said they were sorry and we kind of worked through it, but then later you're like, you're still getting punished for the same thing. Um, that's not God. God poured out everything on Jesus. He was satisfied which means we don't have to look over our shoulders. We don't have to worry. We don't have to walk around wondering if there's like a second kidney punch that's coming from some cosmic uh, being. God's satisfied in the wrath that he poured out on Jesus. That's good news for us. How was that transaction accomplished? It says it was by his blood. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. That's been the standard from Genesis all the way through Revelation, that the punishment for sin was death and so someone had to die. Jesus died and through his blood, his substituted was for us. That's what God used to accomplish our justification. Now, I wanna make sure you understand all this means for you because I, I know this is a lot of information. I'm just kind of throwing at you today. As you think about this, being justified does not just mean God says not guilty, he actually goes beyond that and says, you are righteous in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, for our sake, God made 
him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he knew no sin, but God made him who knew no sin, so that, uh, I'm sorry, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took all of our sin and put it on Jesus, and then took Jesus' righteousness and put it on us. That means that when God looks at you, he sees you as as righteous as Jesus. That's the great exchange that scriptures talk about. We gave all of our sin. Jesus took it. He took the punishment for that. Because of that, God was able to take Jesus' righteousness and impute it or apply it to us so that God looks upon us with the righteousness of Jesus. Not because of who we are, but because of the gift that Christ gave. To be justified is not just to have God forgive your sin debt, but he actually goes further than that and legally declares us righteous. And you need to understand that Christ didn't die to give you a do-over. Christ didn't die to just give you a second chance. Christ didn't die just to kind of get your head back above water and then hope that you could swim it out from there. Christ died to cover everything. In fact, he, he didn't just delay your execution or delay your punishment. He, he removed the offense completely. It's completely gone. Colossians 2 says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, there was a debt record that was against us. There was a document that, that, that said, this one owes the debt of his sin. And what this scripture says is that God set that aside. Jesus took your debt. He, he, he canceled it. He marked, marked it free and clear through his death. He took that, that document that was a record of wrongs against you. And it said he went over and he just nailed it to the cross. Who was nailed to the cross? Jesus. He took nails through his hands and through his feet. He was nailed to the cross. He was the one that took that. And as he did it, when he was done, it was marked paid in full, which means in God's eyes, you were declared righteous. Friends, that's why we sing songs like, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole of it. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul, it is well. You bear it no more. If you know Jesus, all record of wrong has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. There's freedom in that. So if you have Christ, let me say this, when it talks about this in Romans, it says that you have been justified. That's past tense, right? And so when you think about this big umbrella that we're, that we're living under called salvation, the first part of that we talk about being justification. Justification, it says you have been justified, meaning this is something that was settled already in the past. So if you put your faith in Christ at that time, you were justified, declared righteous, made new, through, made new through regeneration, but declared righteous and justified before him. That's something that's settled. That's something that can't be undone. That's something that has been accomplished in the past. Now, let's look at the next aspect of salvation, which is called sanctification. So if, if justification was that we're free from the penalty of sin, and that happened in the past, sanctification is gonna be freedom from the power of sin. And that's something that is being worked out right now. This is something that, this is part of salvation of God that's being worked out in the present, kind of real-time unpacking of salvation in our lives, right? So whereas justification was past, salvation's happening now. It's a process of growth. 2 Corinthians 3 says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, uh, are being transformed 
into the same image, meaning we're all being transformed to become like Jesus as we behold him. And it says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So God breathed life into us in that we received the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. And through that, a part of that process is the Spirit begins to transform who we are. And so we're beginning to be changed to become like Jesus. By God's grace, what this means is that we're no longer slaves to sin. We've been delivered from its dominance in our lives. We said last week that we were enslaved to our sin nature. And it wasn't just, sins aren't just kind of peccadillos and things we do. Sin actually infects who we are. What we see here is that the Spirit comes in, begins to transform us. And so there's a deliverance from the power of sin in our lives. And in the Gospels, Jesus, when he walked around amongst us, said, when, I, when I'm gone, I'm going to send you a helper that's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to enlighten you and he's going to teach you and he's going to be at work in you. And so Jesus has sent the Spirit to, to live within us, and the Spirit of God helps us to bring about our transformation. Any of you make New Year's resolutions? Uh, New Year's resolutions, when you get to this time of year, a lot of us are kind of going back in. Any of you make it to the gym for the first time this week in several months? Any of you's gym a little more crowded than normal? Uh, this happens in our world pretty commonly at this time. Uh, I overheard some guy talking about a Babylon Bee article and there. You know, any of you know what the Babylon Bee is? It's kind of like an onion deal for Christians. It's a kind of a funny newspaper sort of thing that's a, just a funny online site that's meant to be a, a spoof of a news site. And there was an article that came out on that. And a guy was talking about in the article that he was declaring that he was only going to be a part of the universal gym, but not a local gym. Because he, he actually said, I, I don't want to be a part of a local gym because I went there and there were people that were overweight and unfit. There were people that, that weren't perfectly healthy at the gym. So because they're out of shape, I'm not going to go back in the gym. I'm just going to be a part of the universal gym of our world. Uh, now, if you know anything about churches, this is sometimes the way people talk about church. They just go, man, when I got to church, I went there and there, was, there were sinners there. There were people that were messed up. There were people that didn't have it all together and, and it became a little difficult. So, you know what? I'm just gonna leave because I don't really wanna be invested in a local church. I'm just gonna be a part of the universal church. And that's the way people oftentimes think about it. But it sort of misses the point of church, doesn't it? And it sort of missed the, the, the whole point of why we're here and what we're doing. And you go to the gym to become more fit and to see less of your unfit self. You go to church to become more like Jesus and to see less of your sinful self. And so there, there's something in that that we need to understand that church is not where we go because we're perfect. It's where we go to acknowledge by God's grace we've been saved. And by God's grace, we are being saved and are being changed. We're being sanctified and becoming more like him. Sanctification is the grace of progress. But we're all in process doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't mean we're not going to continue to sin. It doesn't mean that, uh, but it does mean that sin does not have the ultimate power over us. Change is now possible through the Holy Spirit. But it's not immediate, is it? We know our sin. We know what it's like to bear the weight of this, the junk in our lives. And we have to bring that to the Lord. In fact, we still have our sinful desires because our flesh is still here. We still have to contend with the world and with our flesh and with the devil. Sin is still crouching at the door, ready to pounce on us. There's still an enemy that's trying to bring us down. There's still this warfare that has to be worked out, not just kind of in our world, but in, in us. In fact, Galatians 5 speaks to that. It says, for brothers, you were called to freedom. He said, but I say, walk in the spirit 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a, there's a battle that goes on in our sanctification that's still God freeing us from the power of sin. And so we've got this kind of old part of us that Galatians calls the flesh, and we've got the spirit in us and, and the spirit that God's brought to life. And, and there is a war going on. It says they're opposed to one another. And any of you still aware of the sinful desires pulling you downward? And we still feel that, don't we? We still are tempted in all sorts of ways. And yet, because of God's saving work in us and sending his spirit, we now have new desires of the spirit pulling us upward to obedience and upward toward holiness. And so whereas before, and we would run headlong into our sin, now there's this invitation and this pull upward into sanctification. And that part of our salvation is just an outworking of God's grace in our lives. Friends, God accepts us and receives us wherever we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He takes us someplace new. And that's the good news. Grace doesn't just forgive us, and grace actually changes us. And then thirdly, we're going to see is grace ultimately glorifies us. That's the third aspect of salvation. If you think about under that big umbrella of salvation, you have justification, which is freedom from the penalty of sin. And it says that has been, that we have been justified. So that's past tense. You've got sanctification, meaning God is freeing us or has freed us from the power of sin. Meaning God is currently, that is being worked out in us. So we are being sanctified. There's this future thing that takes place called glorification that says that God will glorify us in the future. And so we will be glorified. We are justified. We are being sanctified. We will be glorified. And all of that together fits as part of our salvation. Prince, sin one day is going to be eradicated for all time. And so the struggle will be over. There will be, the scriptures say, no more sin, no more sorrow. There will be no more, uh, no more pain, no more fear for us. 1 Corinthians 13 says, we now see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully. See, the, the truth that you see now, but it's a little bit foggy, one day you're going to see crystal clear. And it's all going to be, it's going to be 3D popping out at you and coming to life. That day, all our doubts and our questions will be answered. All our struggles will be over. In fact, it says that we will reign along with Jesus over all of God's new creation. Man, is that not a glorious day you long for? That will be a good day. Man, there's so much I want to say. We'll do that next week. So next week, if you need to be encouraged, if you need to be reminded all this is worth it, then be here next week. And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about heaven and, and kind of what comes next next week, and it's going to be a good time. So do you have a bigger picture of salvation? Do you understand that you need to be regenerated to move into this realm of salvation and under this big umbrella of salvation that you have been justified, you are being sanctified, you will be glorified, and all of that is God's gift of grace to you through the person of Jesus. That's what we, that's what we want to understand. That's what it means to be found. So I think the question for us is how do we get it? The answer is simple. It's belief. How do you get that? You believe it. First Corinthians, or I'm sorry, First John 5 says, and this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life and that life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever is not of the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
John wanted us to know without a doubt that we have eternal life. How do you know? And do you believe the truth about Jesus? Have you trusted the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation. If you believe it, it's yours. You've got to understand what that means. It's interesting in our, uh, sometimes we throw out this diagnostic question and we'll kind of say on a scale of one to 10, how confident are you that you know God and will live with him forever? And in that question, we, we, we actually asked that on our, in our new members workshops. And over the last year, it's been pretty fascinating for us. How, honestly, how many people aren't sure? And that's one of the things as we talked about it, that we just, and it burdened my heart. I just thought, man, for you guys, the people that I get to see every Sunday, I want you to know that you're saved, that that you've been justified, that you're being sanctified, that you will be glorified, that you don't have to doubt that, that you know with confidence so that one day, even as you approach the end of your life, that you can go into that joyfully without fear because you know what God has done in your life. So here's just as we kind of process that and we we thought about kind of the ramifications of all this. Um, If you know Jesus, on a scale of one to 10, you should always be able to say circle 10. And I'm, I'm certain I'm going to heaven because I know what Jesus did for me. That's where we want to be. But I think there's several reasons why we don't always feel that way. Uh, one of the reasons may just be honesty, right? We know that sometimes we have doubts. Sometimes we have questions. Sometimes uh, we just aren't sure of ourselves. And one of my favorite prayers in the gospels is there's this little prayer of a guy that just says, I believe. And then he says, Help my unbelief. There's kind of this tug of war you see in him of going, man, I know it's true, but I want to know it's more true. You know, I want to be more confident that it's true. I want to trust it even more fully. And I think sometimes we circle lower than 10 because we just know our own futility and our own weakness. And there's some some sincere honesty there that just says, man, I want more. I want to believe more and I need. And so what I would encourage you, if if that's kind of where you are, I'd say that's understandable, but continue to redirect your eyes from yourself to your Savior. Continue to shift your eyes from looking at your faith and, look, and redirect them to look at the one who died for you, the one who was resurrected, the one who, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father and interceding for you and call out to him and say, Jesus, would you help me? But look to him rather than looking to yourself. But those are normal kind of feelings that we need to redirect and learn to let those doubts fade away by fixing our eyes more on the truth of the gospel. Now, on the other hand, I think there's another group that sometimes circles and answer a little bit lower. And that group, I, I think, maybe showing some signs of false humility. Here's what I mean by that. And this can be a little bit hard. Um, I think sometimes we circle a little bit lower because we say, well, I'm not a perfect person. I still struggle with sin. Sometimes I, I fail in my battles and I don't win and maybe I'm not a good enough church member. And so because of that, we're just gonna circle a six or a seven and we, we don't feel totally confident in what it is we do because we just know, man, I blow it sometimes. Friend, what I wanna say to, to you is you need to go back and listen to this message over and over and over until it sinks in. You are not saved through self-effort. You are saved through a Savior who's already accomplished it all. You've been regenerated. You've been justified. You're being sanctified. You'll be glorified. You need to learn to rest in that. If you still think, and I can't be confident in my salvation because I'm not good enough, and you're never good enough. You've never been good enough. You will never be good enough. 
No one has ever been good enough save one, Jesus. And so we put our eyes on him. And so if, if you're looking at him, then you can circle. Yes, I'm sure. Because I know that he has fulfilled, that he's satisfied God's wrath, that, he's, uh, that his, um, his sacrifice was accepted and he's called me righteous because of Christ. And so you can kind of move into the other side of that. In fact, the Bible says that our salvation is a gift of grace. It's not of yourselves, lest no man could boast. Meaning if you're looking at yourself saying, well, maybe I'm not good enough, I can't circle 10. Well, scripture already told you you weren't good enough. So it's not of yourselves. You couldn't do it on your own. It goes on and says, in fact, that you're saved by faith. And then it goes on and says, you're saved by faith and that is not your own doing. It's like he wants to make sure you get that. Like even your faith is a gift from God. Even your faith is not your own doing. And so there, you can let go of false humility and cling to Jesus and cling to his grace because he's already paid for it all. All we have to do is believe and receive who he is in order to, to be confident about our salvation. But let me tell you about one more kind of person. And this is, I think, the most difficult one. And there, there are some people, I think, who are happy to circle 10, but maybe they shouldn't. There are some people that say, I'm completely confident, but perhaps they shouldn't. And just say this, it might ought to concern you if you're never brokenhearted over your sin. It might ought to concern you if you have no desire to be with God's people. It might ought to concern you if you've never invested in Christ's mission. If you don't have any desire for his word, if there's nothing stirs in your heart that wants to express gratitude and worship to the God of the universe, the one that made you and sent his son to save you, if you don't get distraught about broken relationships with others who are your brothers and sisters, if you don't see any kind of life change, if you don't have any desire to be like Jesus, I think maybe you should have some concerns. Maybe you shouldn't circle 10. Because true faith changes who we are and it impacts who we are. There's a, in the scriptures we see that there's a kind of faith that won't save you. John, James 2, 19 says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they even shudder. See, there's a, there's a demonic faith. Do you understand that the demons understand all the truth about who Jesus is? Like they don't need any information. They understood who God is. They understand who Jesus is. They knew what he was here to do. In fact, not only that, they were emotionally impacted and affected by it. It says they, they understood, they believe, and they shudder at the truth of who he is. You know, are the demons saved? Are the demons going to spend eternity with the Lord in joy? No, not at all. So there's some kind of a belief that you can have that's just a mental assent or an intellectual understanding of the true facts, but not a receiving of the truth, not a believing of it and embracing of it. And so we're talking about here's the difference between kind of a demonic faith and a devoted faith. What does it look like for me to have a faith that's truly, I'm, I've received and I've believed it for myself. I've, I've embraced it. Matthew, Matthew 8, 29, um, Jesus uh, was dealing with some demonic beings again and you see the same kind of an interchange. It's interesting. Uh, he says, behold, the demons cried out to Jesus and said, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I mean, that's amazing. 
Think about this. The demons, they understood who Jesus was. They understood the Trinity, that he was the son of God. They understood the ends of time. Says, if you come to torment us before the end of time. So they had, they had good eschatology. They understood the end times. They understood what Jesus was here to do. And so they come and said, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? So friends, let me ask you this. Does having all the right information necessarily save you? Well, clearly it doesn't, right? But somehow we have to receive by faith God's grace and the gift of salvation he wants to give us. So we're talking about a difference between mentally acknowledging the facts and actually putting your personal faith in Christ. Faith, real faith is a living, dynamic thing that is at work in us. So let me just say this. We aren't saved by works, but we do have to work out our salvation, Scripture says. But, um, we're saved by grace through faith alone, but the, safe, the faith that saves is never alone. So the gospel has to be received by us, and it produces something in us. Salvation is this big umbrella, right? We're justified. We're being sanctified. We're going to be glorified. God's got a future for us, and he's working it out even now in the way he changes us. 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So that I delivered you what I, what I had first received. So we have to receive the truth. It's something we have to accept. It's something we have to take for ourselves. It's something we have to embrace. And so it's not simply saying, I can repeat the information, but I have to embrace the information and appropriate it for myself by faith. And so that's the gift of God. So let me answer one last quick question related to this. If I've received the salvation, can I lose it? And the Bible's really clear on this. That if you've truly embraced Christ by faith, you can never lose your salvation. There's no way for it to ever depart from you. John 10, Jesus is sharing, and he says, I am the good shepherd. I heard a guy say it this way. Um, Jesus said, I'm a good shepherd and I'm never going to lose one of my sheep. And one guy said it this way. He said, uh, if you can lose your salvation, you're not saying I'm a bad sheep. You're saying I have a bad shepherd. Meaning a lot of times we think we can lose our salvation because we're not good enough. But what Jesus says is of all that the father gave me, I will not lose one. He doesn't say of all that the father gave me, they're all going to be okay on their own. He says, I'm the good shepherd. Of all the father gave me, I will not lose one. And he goes on to say, even, and this is just a little bit later in that chapter, he goes on to say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And do you feel the security of that? That the good shepherd says that, that no one can take my sheep away. And he says, and, and besides that, my father's even, my father's so strong, no one's going to take the sheep away from him either. So we've got, we've got security, not, not based on our own goodness, but based on the goodness and the strength of our Lord. Romans 8 says it this way, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know what the definition of nothing is? Nothing. What can separate you from the love of God if you're his? I mean, there's nothing, nothing in this world. He says, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is that good news? 
Friends, I said at the beginning today that we're going to have to think deeply. I feel like we've had to think. I feel like you've learned a little bit about God's salvation, what scriptures have to say. You understand that God birthed something in you, that he declared you righteous and, broke, and set you free from the penalty of sin, that he's continuing by his grace through his spirit to work in you and your sanctification, and he is, and so that, so that you, you're free from the power of sin and you're being transformed to become more like Jesus. And one day, Jesus is coming back. He's going to make all things new. And we're going to be glorified. And we're going to live with him forever. And we're going to reign with him forever. And what we now see in part, we're going to see in full. And there'll be nothing held back in that day. And it's important that we think deeply about this because I think that's where strength comes for us to live out our faith in a real way in the day-to-day of stuff, in the stuff of this world. But I also wanted to say, and if you don't understand all of that. You need to come back and re-listen to it and relearn it over the years and continue to deepen your faith. I want you to know there's really one thing you have to know. At the end of the day, there's one thing that drives all this. First John 5 says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's the gospel. One theologian on his deathbed who had written volume after volume, page after page, about all of this, said on his deathbed, they said, what do you know? In all your studies and all your work and everything you've done, what do you know? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Friends, it's deep enough that we'll never mind the depths of all that we have in Christ, but it's simple enough it fits in a little kid's song. And all we're called to do is believe. Friends, do you know Do you know the Son? That's life. If you don't, you don't don't yet know life. Man, would you trust Him? It's the best thing you'll ever do. Let me pray for us. Father, we're in awe of Your grace. Your grace that birthed new life in us. Your grace that declares us righteous that we bring nothing but sin to the table. Your grace that frees us from the penalty of sin that we deserve. Your grace that renews us and gives us life to free us from the power of sin. And your grace that will one day free us from the presence of sin. Father, would you make us to love your grace, to long for more of your grace, to trust your grace and all the ups and downs of life. And Father, if there be one man or one woman here today who does not yet know your grace, Father, would you pierce their heart? Would you by your spirit breathe life, birth something new in them, make them a new creation even now, that they might know your joy forever, that we might rejoice with them and with the angels in heaven. Father, for all of us, those who have trusted Christ in the past, and might we cling to your grace in every minute of every day, longing to be with you in that forever time when things are completely made new. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.